there was an incident where a 13-year-old RPA soldier pointed an RPG at me while I was on gun picket. The RPG was bigger than the kid. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. We weren't out there to take country, we were out on your That was their job. I did feel a lot of regret. Friends were still getting killed. It got to the point where, you know, you're going to funerals quite often. Do I lead under fire? And that was a heavy responsibility, I guess, on my shoulders that I didn't want to screw up. War itself is horrific. It's a horror story. It should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. Not what you can do for yourself, but what can you do for your country? The volunteer for service was, in effect, to put your life on the line. I'm Sharon Maskeldare. And you're listening to Life on the Line. In today's podcast, we meet Colonel Trent Bernard, who served in the Australian Army for 32 years and is now a senior army officer based in Adelaide, South Australia. Leadership and resilience are a focus for Trent today as he shares what he's learnt from the army and what it means for him in his civilian life. Trent, thanks very much for joining us on Life on the Line. Thank you, Sharon. Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, to speak with you and the audience uh, today. So tell us about your childhood. Where did you grow up? Well, uh, although I was born in in Victoria, I consider myself a proud South Australian and uh, and I grew up in South Australia, down south. So uh, not a particularly affluent or uh, wealthy background by any stretch, but then that was reasonably typical, I think, for back in the 70s and early 80s, which is... Uh, when I used to used to kick around, and um, I went to primary school at Morfavale East, uh, high school at Aberfoyle Park, and also Nord High School uh, after my parents separated. Yeah, that's about it. Did you always know you were going to join the army? One hundred percent. Really? Well, I guess not so much the army, but the defence forces. So I have quite a um, quite a prolific family history. Uh, within the military. So if I sort of step it back, my father was in the Air Force, although um, I often joke that he was he joined the Air Force so he could dodge the draft, but um, uh, he did that and was um, uh, he spent his, I guess, his uh, return of service in the RAF. And from there, if we go a little further back, my grandfather, my maternal grandfather was a hurricane and spitfire pilot um, in uh, Egypt, so northern Africa and then uh, the UK. And uh, he often lamented that he was flying on all the days the Germans weren't. So, um, but he he did have quite a distinguished flying career, um, aside from the fact that it wasn't uh, combat related. My other grandfather was in the Navy and he was a um, supply and gunnery on uh, naval corvette. He had a quite a extensive history and repertoire of stories from World War Two, and some of them were uh, quite. Uh, quite confronting. Whereas my my other grandfather in the in the RAF, he didn't speak about his time in the war, and p- perhaps he thought that it wasn't interesting enough. But he never really offered much up. Uh, my grandfather on my uh, uh, paternal side definitely spoke about it, and um, and the witty banter that he would inflict on me as a young child was um, was something that I was to later get used to as a soldier in the army. But if I went a little further back, my uh, great-grandfather served in the 27th Battalion in Gallipoli. 
He was the platoon sergeant for Tom Playford, the longest-serving Premier of South Australia, and went on to serve Tom Playford while he was in office. And my family history goes right the way back to the Boer War. Also, my great-great-uncle, I think, uh, Renfrey Bernard. Um, I'm not sure that we call people Renfrey anymore, but he was a surgeon, quite a renowned surgeon in South Australia. He was deployed to the Western Front. Allegedly uh, saved the life of Tom Playford when he was shot in the stomach and it hit his, uh, hit his webbing buckle and um, splintered through his stomach and actually saved him in the RAP on the Western Front when that happened. Now we're going to come back to that fascinating connection actually in terms of the 10th 27th Battalion, the Royal South Australia Regiment, um, where you went on to become the commanding officer a number of years later. We'll come back to that with that connection with your family. But I'm interested to know... When you decided to join Defence then, what was its significance for you other than family? What meaning did it carry for you? Why was it a kind of vocation that you decided to go into? I always had an attraction to it. There was something about military service. I was that kid running around in the 70s, you know, playing cops and robbers and soldiers and all of that sort of stuff. But the reality is I was actually wanting to be a fighter pilot. So I wanted to join the, the RAAF and uh, what I found was I was rubbish at maths and physics and there's something to be said for you may want something so much that that's all you can focus on but without the drive and the determination to make that happen and, and break down those long-term goals into, I guess, uh, achievable components, it's just fantasy. I really didn't apply myself as a, as a high school student. But having said that, during my junior high school years, because the RAF didn't have Air Force cadets at the time down south where I was living, I joined the Army cadets. And so from 13 years of age, uh, I was an Army cadet. And then, you know, once I'd finished uh, high school the first time, I joined the Army Reserve. So I, I became a recruit in the 10th, 27th Battalion back in... I guess 1990. Oh, yeah, I was always going to serve in uniform. It just uh, didn't end up being the uniform I initially thought I wanted uh, wanted to wear as as an eight year old. So you know, it was from that time as an eight year old. Now you enlisted initially as a soldier. Tell us a bit about your basic training. <laughs> was it fun? Ah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it was a very it's a very different prospect back in the early 1990s. So you have to you have to picture it in a way that maybe many current soldiers and officers probably don't quite remember it or it's history for them. Uh, there's a lot of my service that's now considered um, ancient history. But back in 1990, a lot of our training, we still had uh, Vietnam veterans as our instructors. Like they were literally still delivering lessons, you know, from a Vietnam veteran lens. I joined the army, I was wearing greens, AB boots and gaiters, so ankle boots and, and gaiters, uh, carrying SLRs and M60s and M16s, and, and they were all pretty worn out at that particular point in time. You know, I was recruited in the space of a week. I spent a couple of weeks in the unit before going off on my basic training, and it was very basic. It was two weeks, but that two weeks enabled me to do the basics that I would argue we could you know, consider as a usable soldier for even domestic operations such as you know COVID and op flood assist and bushfires and, and all of those sorts of things now. And then, you know, a couple of months later I was doing my IETs. So with four weeks training, we were doing 
pretty rudimentary type of training. But I guess back in those days, we didn't really have a focus and the reserves really didn't have that role and purpose that it does now. And so that's probably that's probably the key. But it was it was pretty basic, you know, marching up and down the drill square, you know, using the SLR, learning how to starch and iron greens, all that sort of basic stuff. So it wasn't much more than that. What's notable, however, is very soon after you completed your training, or relatively soon, you found yourself deployed and deployed to a significant conflict, being Rwanda. How did that come about? Well, um, I guess from my perspective, I wanted to I wanted to join the reserves because I always knew I was going to be full time army. That was always going to happen from the time that I had, you know, become a late teenager and I. I'd recognise I wasn't going to be in Air Force. I knew that I was going to be full-time. And so I joined the reserves to get an understanding of what it might be like and sort of dip my toe in the water a little bit. That was that was largely my incentive. Plus, I was still still living at home. I was working. I had a storeman's job uh, and then a, a removalist. I was promoted to Lance Corporal probably about two years after I was recruited. So I was about 19 when I was a Lance Corporal. And then uh, at... 20 I decided to to make the transition I could have transferred across so that sort of concept of transferring between service categories as we call them now existed back then but what I really wanted to do and it was going to make it easier to actually get in was to go back through to uh, back through Kapuka and so I did Kapuka and uh, the School of Infantry as a full-time soldier and made my way to the second fourth uh, battalion uh, up in Townsville and that was, uh, that was sort of, uh, I guess, about November 1993. It wasn't until, from memory, August 1994 uh, and the lead-up in the weeks before that that we really knew that we were going to go to Rwanda. So that was quite, that was quite confronting and quite exciting as well. I, I guess the last conflict prior to that had been Somalia, Cambodia, obviously, and a few other sort of minor peacekeeping operations. But for me, this is what mattered. This is why I joined. And Rwanda, for our listeners who are perhaps not familiar with that conflict, we had this essentially highly violent ethnic conflict between the Hutus and the Tutsis. But having been there yourself, what was your expectation of what you were going into? We had no idea. No idea at all. To, to be honest, uh, I'm not sure that many people, uh, th- certainly the impression from a soldier's perspective was that, that no one really knew, firstly, where Rwanda was and certainly what we were experiencing uh, or going to experience. It was just unknown at that, at that particular time. And there was, there was a lot of toing and froing about how the decision-making was happening to determine what was going, who was going, those sorts of things. So there was a great deal of uncertainty. And then, of course, we went through the mission readiness exercises and those sorts of things, but we really didn't have a great idea of uh, what we were going to encounter. Probably the, the person that I think did have the, the greatest idea, and I don't know whether this was by design or by accident, was the legal officer who put us through a series of UN-related, I guess, role-playing activities that, in fact, one of those... Uh, incidents uh, played out in real time whilst I was in Rwanda. And, and it was that training, I think, that certainly helped everybody keep their, their cool and their calm. So, But the briefings were generic. Um, the threat, you know, we all heard about it on the news, don't, don't get me wrong, 
Uh, but what we were going to experience, I, I think, was unknown at the time. Just talk us through rules of engagement because that ended up being absolutely intrinsic, I think, to the experience that many people had in Rwanda. So just so our audience understands what are rules of engagement and indeed how did that impact what you could and couldn't do in Rwanda? Yeah, it's a really good question. I would love to have, uh, in, in fact, I actually gave away my rules of engagement uh, cards probably only three or four years ago to a museum which was up on the Gold Coast which and, and is now closed. I'd love to go back over those rules of engagement and orders for opening fire now. I guess my feeling of it was that it was extremely restrictive. What that did because of, I guess, agreements between the Australian government, the UN and, you know, that, that tension, that, uh, I guess, conflict between, you know, what we could and couldn't do and what was acceptable to the Australian government and what we could get involved in was quite problematic for troops on the ground because that turned itself into uncertainty and it was that uncertainty and that hesitancy didn't allow, I, I believe, and this is my own personal opinion, it didn't allow Australian soldiers to take the initiative in those sort of critical seconds. And I saw that play out probably a couple of times uh, in my view and, and once involving myself. And ordinarily you would expect a soldier to open fire, to protect others, but it was I just I never felt that I truly understood when I could and couldn't fire. Even though, yeah, certainly section commanders and platoon commanders and legal officers have said you can here, you can't there. But I, I think we all were left with this uncertainty, and without that certainty, you just don't feel confident. Describe for us perhaps one of the typical scenes that you came across when you were deployed to Rwanda. Yeah, I, I would have to say the RPA or the Rwandan Patriotic Army were absolutely testing us. They did not want us in that country. Uh, and and the reality is is that they had been successful. They were the rebels. Uh, they'd come across from you know largely the Ugandan border, essentially swept aside the Rwandan government forces, and it was payback time. You know, there was a lot of interharmway. They were the militia. They were hidden amongst various refugee camps and in villages, and and they were they were being hunted down essentially. They didn't want the UN to remain in the country, and so they they went about I think calculated actions of intimidation. So what they would do is they'd come up to our gates uh, where we were on guard duty. They would threaten us. They would bring large numbers of forces to the gates point weapons, automatic weapons. There was an incident where a 13-year-old RPA soldier pointed an RPG at me while I was on gun picket. That's confronting until you realise he's you know, well inside the arming range, the arming distance for the RPG. That in itself, you know, the RPG was bigger than the kid. And there's plenty of examples where RPA soldiers would try and intimidate us while we were on uh, convoy duties or on the... F- you know, in the back gate of the hospital or the front gate of our compound. And I personally believe that the discipline in the training that Australian soldiers re- received was largely responsible for the few number of incidents. And certainly I, I, I don't believe that we sort of exchanged fire with anyone. And I, to be clear, I was on the first rotation, so I, I wasn't at the Cabello incident. Um, but there were other incidents that we... That we had to attend, obviously. Now, when you returned from Rwanda, you decided to commission as an officer and you went to the Royal Military College Duntroon. 
What do you think you brought to that new direction in your career as a result of your experiences in Rwanda? Because you were only a young man when you deployed. You're in your very early 20s. That must have been a formative experience from you that then went on to shape your career in some way. Yeah, it, it certainly was. What did I bring? That's not a, um, a question I, I guess I was ready for because um, I'm not sure that I had thought about it. I always wanted to be a leader in the Defence Forces and I thought that at that particular point that I could I could lead or wanted to certainly wanted to lead Australian soldiers and that's what motivated me to go there I was quite surprised we had a we had a large number of ex-serving members at the Royal Military College in that particular class and it progressively became like that there was a few ex-soldiers from Somalia a couple from Cambodia but uh, but certainly no one from Rwanda at that stage what did I bring I was struggling a lot I got to tell you, I um, I had significant issues in adjust in adjusting, not so much, and I don't. I certainly wouldn't describe it as PTSD. Not that it was you know, was diagnosed at that point anyway. But I I had some significant adjustment issues that I found as a result of coming back from Rwanda and then leaving leaving the guys that I went with to Rwanda and then heading to RMC and having to adjust to a, a whole new culture without the support of a team that had been there. Uh, to be honest, um, you know, my first my first morning in Polly's, I had to go and ask someone where to, how to put the ribbons on and where the ribbons went. Never worn them before. And no one else knew either, just quietly. This, we're talking about the mid-90s. <laughs> so I had to go find someone from, from Somalia. I did struggle. And I actually had to go and seek out uh, the doctor, Michelle Barrett, who was at RMC. She'd been posted to RMC Hospital. She, was, she had been a captain in Rwanda and also uh, the then captain, Mick Burgess, um, who was also at RMC as an instructor. And, and, um, and it, was, it was good to see a couple of friendly faces because I certainly needed it. So commissioning as an officer, what for you apart from the increased perhaps responsibility, obviously the shift in role, what were the shifts in identity that came from no longer being a soldier and being an officer? Well, if my first two annual reports were anything to go by, I, um, I didn't do that transition very well. Um, so I, I graduated to, uh, to Ostint, so Intelligence Corps, and was posted to the Pilbara Regiment. So I did a lot of my infantry courses plus a lot of the surveillance courses uh, as a, a full-time int officer within infantry, which um, which ironically allowed me to core transfer back when I left the full-time army, uh, transfer back to infantry. And um, I don't think I made that transition very well. And the reason was, was because at that point in time, I certainly don't feel that I had matured well enough, I probably didn't take my role as as a leader seriously enough. You know, my entire time as a as a full time army officer, I really wasn't the leader that I that I became. And I think that's because you, you've got to be somewhat kind to yourself because we're all on a leadership journey. Um, it doesn't matter where we where we sit in our careers, whether we stay long term within the army and. Or, you know, we're only in the army for, for four years and then head off into civilian roles. Um, we're all on a leadership journey. And, um, and so I, I try to be a little kind to myself. Pilbara Regiment, 
hugely important in terms of contributing to national security and capability. Yeah, I, I guess uh, before I was given that posting order, I didn't even know where the Pilbara Regiment was. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know where it was. I certainly didn't know how much of a responsibility that it and its two sister regiments had. And its role is largely to conduct uh, surveillance and reconnaissance within its area of operations. I experienced a real shift in culture and mindset. Again, back in the mid mid to late 90s, there was probably some uh, cultural issues that certainly wouldn't be, wouldn't stand, stand well today. And that's also something that I've noticed. But I, uh, I was given the opportunity to lead part-time, so they were part-time soldiers, men and women in the Pilbara Regiment, drawn from uh, the local areas, the local towns. They had extensive experience in their local regions and highly capable too, as far as as far as operating, you know, extreme distances away from uh, away from their home bases and their hometowns. They came from you know quite small towns. They were very very competent drivers, which is important, and very competent at um, running surveillance type activities. And so I learned a lot from them, but I also learned a lot in basic leadership early on because. In my view, leadership is compelling someone to do what you want them to do because they want to do it. And it stood me it stood me in good stead because whilst I didn't get that lesson early on, I certainly understand that now. And when you're dealing with part-time soldiers, if they don't like you as a leader, you know, people join organisations and leave leaders. And if they don't like you as a leader, they'll leave. And, and so compelling people to do what you want them to do because they want to do it is really the critical lesson that I've learned around leadership. And it started back then, although it didn't really crystallise for me until much later. Now, you mentioned at this time that you were in the intelligence corps. How did that sit with you, given that before that you'd been in the infantry? So in line with my desire to be a pilot, I actually applied to, to go through the selection process for aviation. Uh, while I was at the Royal Military College. And so my first choice was aviation. And, and you know, right, bet- right before we... In fact, we had to select our cores, our, our core preferences. And I had aviation as first, int as second, and then infantry third. So I was, you know, relying on, relying on my infantry experience, but I really wanted to be a, a Blackhawk pilot. There was that fit with my desire to be a pilot as the cores were chosen my results for aviation selection came back and I I had missed out in fact I was first reserve so I was hoping that one of the many um, pilot candidates that were selected would knock back the offer but I was a realist and I knew that that wasn't ever going to happen but um, uh, it was what it was and uh, and so I went to to Ostint which for me was going to be a whole new set of experiences and exposure um, to a range of different capabilities, none of which I knew in detail at that time because, you know, uh, it's int. But very quickly, once I did my, um, so post my posting to uh, the Pilbara Regiment, I did my ROBC, so the Regimental Officers Basic Course. And I very quickly formed an impression of what I wanted to do. Uh, It wasn't how it turned out. So... Uh, I wanted to be involved in exploitation, so interrogation, counterintelligence or human intelligence collection, but that's not how it turned out. And I ended up um, being a security and analyst specialist. 
So there you go. And you went on to deploy to East Timor and you were using some of those skills. Mm. How did that play out? Yeah, so I was posted to Headquarters Northern Command right around the time of, I guess, the immigration crisis or the boat, the boat crisis that Australia was facing and it mobilised a whole-of-government approach. And I think largely that's where we, um, that sort of whole-of-government approach was really popularised as well um, and became quite, quite common lexicon at the time. But the whole children overboard, CFX, all of those sorts of things were, were happening at the time that I was at uh, Headquarters Northern Command. But at that particular point in time, I was offered the opportunity to head across to uh, East Timor and, um, and go across as, as an analyst for the Australian National Command element uh, in Dili uh, as a, I guess, a political and a threat analyst, an int analyst um, for... Uh, for the headquarters. It was an interesting deployment, but for very different reasons um, than Rwanda. And my experience was probably not what most people might think of um, as a as an operational experience. But it was literally twelve hours on and twelve hours off in a, in a building without windows, uh, with a Clayton's day off at the end of the week. Literally reading, collecting information, and processing that information into intelligence. Um, for briefings daily and and sort of weekly summaries and those sorts of things and it became quite um, it, it was quite an effort to stay focused on really complex things for a long period of time so you know six months working in in that sort of environment sure it wasn't you know on gun picket and patrolling through East Timor uh, East Timor's um, border areas and those sorts of things but it was a different type of challenge and I didn't exactly enjoy the leadership at the time that I was working for and I learned another very valuable lesson is that there is regardless of the leaders that you work for there's there's great lessons to be learned from each one of them and so one in particular outside of that particular operation I probably wouldn't be I wouldn't associate or be friends with or whatever but it's you know it's not a friends-based democracy and I, um, I learned how to write. He was an exceptional writer and his command of the written language was, I would argue, exquisite. And given the sensitivities around, you know, a lot of the information that we were writing and briefing to quite senior leaders uh, of the UN, not just Australia, but of the UN, it was quite valuable. And I brought that back into Headquarters Northern Command and, and I've used that that learning from the rest of my, um, for the rest of my career. Now, in parallel with much of your military career, you've also been engaged in a number of significant postings in a civilian capacity mm. to conflict zones. Talk us through some of those and how you've been able to draw on your military experience to support your civilian work? It's been a focus of mine to be able to try and balance my ongoing military commitments with my civilian role. Um, and the civilian roles have always been quite demanding. I left the full-time army in 2004 uh, as a, a senior captain in uh, the Int Battalion uh, in Victoria Barracks in New South Wales. I left for a number of reasons, but largely to pursue my own, pursue my own goals. And to, to give myself a little bit of freedom, I did note that uh, I wanted to stay connected to the military in some way. 
but I just thought that I could choose my own career. And so in December 2004, I left the military, I left the full-time army and went to Iraq. I went there as a private contractor in an analyst role. And it was that analytical experience that I, I didn't want to go down that path as an in officer that ultimately got me you know, my, my start in my civilian roles. And so, so I left there when the contract ended in, in uh, July 2006 and then went on to, to be the head of security for or civilian security for the regional assistance mission to the Solomon Islands. Uh, so I essentially looked after all of the security and the emergency responsibilities for all the civilians that were deployed, which was far in excess of the number of military and police that were there at the time. Like the bulk of the responsibility was uh, fell to the to the civilians within Ramsey. And then from there, security and risk management for a mine site, a major nickel mine site in Indonesia, so in in Sulawesi. I spent about three years in Papua New Guinea for ExxonMobil, uh, and I was also the principal security advisor and emergency advisor for Origin, so head of uh, security and emergency for Origin globally. You know, I went on to be a project manager, and now I'm the co-founder of Hindsight Leadership and Resilience. And all of my experience in the military uh, has assisted me in getting to this point. Um, even even my role in Papua New Guinea and Indonesia was not only my security background and my analytical background, but I went to the School of Languages and I studied Indonesian or Bahasa and Tokpisin. So, so all of those experiences helped me later on down the track. And what do you think was a particular standout in terms of what you were able to apply from your military experience, particularly with regard to leadership and resilience in your civilian life? Or indeed, has it been very much a two-way street that to some degree your military life has informed your civilian life, but also vice versa? Yeah, I think, I think the latter, very much so. I believed that I understood what it meant to lead and be resilient as a result of my experience in the military. And I largely took that into my civilian roles and very quickly found out that the style of leadership that we're largely used to delivering... Yeah, so there's obviously uh, similarities in leadership traits and requirements that um, are common across all leadership styles. But I found that over time, leadership lessons that I was bringing into the civilian workplace... I was bringing equal number back into my military experience. And so I continued throughout all of those international, I guess, roles, those uh, leadership roles. I was continuing my military career as both a captain and and, and then a major and then, and then again as a lieutenant colonel. And by the time I became the commanding officer of the 10th, 27th Battalion, I'd actually learnt a lot of my leadership lessons from those civilian roles. And I brought that into a... I brought that into a military context. And so I, I, I believe that my leadership experience was very different as a result of having this really broad exposure to clients, senior stakeholders, government ministers, and all of these other, all of these other um, sets of experiences that I brought to command. Now talk us through those very precious years that you had as the commanding officer of the 10th, 27th Battalion because it was the Anzac centenary period. Mm. There was this national interest in reserve service following on from the civilian militia from 100 years ago. The fact you had that 
family connection back yeah. to the 27th Battalion, it must have had particular significance and salience for you. Yeah, it absolutely did. Um, and it probably started to hit home um, just prior to. So 2015, it had become clear that I'd been selected for command of the battalion in 2016. And so the previous CO was hosting a reenactment parade uh, in Unley. And I actually took my grandfather to that parade and he was holding a, he was holding a picture frame of his father who had deployed with the 27th Battalion and marched down that very same road on his way to, to World War One? And for me, I guess it really struck home as to the extent of the history and that small part that I was playing as a steward in that regiment's history. And so it started, it started from, I think, that day, and that's where it really, it really became quite poignant for me. You know, 2016, 17, 18... I guess in those first, those early months, you spend a lot of time trying to understand what's important to you, what's critical to the organisation, so the battalion or the regiment in general. And it was quite complex. At that time, at that time we had a squadron of light cavalry, we had uh, a light battery, we had a, an engineer squadron and, and two rifle companies and and, you know, the organisation changes almost year to year. But uh, at that particular point in time, it was quite a complex little organisation. Part of it's part-time. You know, you're, everyone always feels understaffed. But, of course, we felt understaffed. And so, f- for me, I, I have to say that despite all of the learnings, those leadership lessons, I still made mistakes. But I think I was far kinder on myself at those, at those times. I was... You know, I'd be given those mentoring... Let's call them mentoring lessons from, uh, from senior leadership... And being open to those lessons and being open to that advice from from your key staff was was really really important uh, for me. And I never went into that role with this belief that I was the commanding officer. For me, and I know that sounds counterintuitive. For me, I just considered myself the steward for the next next person. It wasn't about me. It was about the position. And I've never attached uh, my role or my rank to my personality. I know that at some stage, like everybody, the army is going to say, thank you very much for your time, your service, or either you're going to leave or the army is going to tell you to leave. And, you know, through one mechanism or another. And so I've never really attached my personality or my identity to any of these roles. And I think that was critical because I only ever made decisions for the good of the army and the people in it never for myself. And so that was one of the key, uh, key lessons that I learned as a, as a commander. And if I can go a little further, I really think I landed on what it meant to be a leader during my time as a CO. And you might think that you probably need to have it sorted out before you're a CO. I don't really think I learned what it meant to be a leader until my sister joined the battalion as a rifleman. Uh, and she's still a member of the 10th, 27th Battalion now. Uh, and then not long after that, my son uh, joined as well. He's now a full-time soldier. I really reflected on this this thought that my sister and my son were, were being led by leaders within my own organisation. I really thought deeply about 
you know, what sort of experience they were getting from their leaders, those junior leaders, the, the section commanders, the platoon sergeants, the, the platoon commanders and even the OCs. And then, I th- and then I sort of almost chastised myself. Why was I thinking so hard about my own sister and my son? Well, every soldier and officer is someone's sister, son, brother, mother, father. So it really helped to crystallise this, uh, this belief around empathy uh, for others and understanding that everybody has a role to play, but everybody's a human at the end of the day. Um, and so that, that really did change my leadership style. So today you undertake leadership and resilience consulting in a civilian capacity. Clearly you've undertaken a lot of self-discovery, particularly in recent years. What are your key messages then that you put out to your civilian clients when you're working with them? What is it you feel you're really trying to teach them? It's a really good question. It doesn't have a scripted answer because as I, as I sort of insinuated before, everybody is on their own journey. Everybody is learning, making mistakes. If I was to score your leadership style out of, you know, zero to 100, how could I give you, Sharon, 100? Does that mean that you've made it, that you're the best leader? Like you're never going to get a score out of 100, right? And when I speak with clients, it's really important to understand what they want as a leader, to understand what their style is and where they are in their sort of journey of understanding. But I do encourage a couple of really key points and that is, and that is the process of being reflective. And you really can be taught all the leadership lessons, you can have all of the centres of excellence that you can attend and they can belt feed you information around leadership and resilience. But if you are not personally reflective, if you don't understand what's happened, identify your values, your beliefs, your biases, understand your feelings, why you feel the way you do about a certain situation or a conversation, and then work out what your other options are going forward, or if you were in a, a similar situation next time, then you're, you're going to miss those real true learning opportunities And it's those learning opportunities that really change your behaviours. That's the critical component. I can teach you about leadership till the cows come home, but if you don't inculcate that into your own behaviour set through true learning, you're going to learn leadership in a washing machine. You're going to get thrown around by the circumstances of the day. You're going to learn, sure, through osmosis, eventually, basically in the school of hard knocks but it doesn't allow you to learn and change your behaviours as quickly. In closing, Trent, what is it you would like to perhaps put across to the listeners in terms of what you've learnt and obviously now in the civilian world? Leadership, if I was to describe leadership in one word, it would be care. You can care for your team in a range of different ways. And in a military context, that might be the application of the Defence Force Discipline Act. It could be hard training. It could be the obvious, making sure that they're being paid and that they've got the right equipment and given the right opportunities, all of that. But if you, if you truly understand that your role as a leader is to care for those individuals and care for their development, and this, this holds true in a civilian context as well, then you will be a far greater leader in my humble opinion. Well, in order to demonstrate that care, you have to be able to display empathy. And if you understand that you lack empathy, then that is an area for uh, development for you. I like to use the concept of the invisible backpack. If you were to describe 
what your leadership superpower is, I would posit that if you could understand what's going on in the in the lives or the history or the values or the upbringing of your team members, and if you knew that, you would change your leadership style towards them to get the best out of them and to get them to want to do what you want them to do. Because I can compel you in a range of different ways, either in a civilian role or a military role. True leadership is about getting people to do what you want them to do because they want to do it. So understanding what's going on in the lives of your team members is really probably the most critical lesson, in my view. Colonel Trent Bernard, thank you so much for sharing your experiences and your insights. Thanks very much. I really appreciate it. I'm Sharon Maskeldare, and you've been listening to Life on the Line. For more conversations about Rwanda, listen to the following episodes. In Season 2, in conversation with Thomas K, Number 33, Tracy Smart. I'm sorry, sister. Uh, We weren't able to save her, so she just passed, you know, a little while ago. And the nun burst into tears, so I then had to counsel the nun. In Season 3, speaking with Sharon Maskeldare, Number 66, James O'Hanlon. Because if they get distracted, they'll either get themselves killed or their mates killed. So that's where officers have to stand back and give them the environment or the circumstances where they can do their job. In Season 4, speaking with Angus Horden, Number 80, Robin White. There were lots of children that we looked after who'd been injured horrifically with landmines. And earlier this season, as mentioned in the podcast, number 124, Mick Burgess. When we got in there, it was quite a damaged place. There was still the remnants of the war, of the killings. It wasn't unusual to, when I was looking for warehouse spaces and things like that, to find bodies still in the warehouses. For more stories about Australia's involvement in Timor, go to our website and scroll through the episodes page, which lists all of our Timor stories. You can follow this podcast at Life on the Line Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at LOTLPod on Twitter and on LinkedIn at Thistle Productions. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget.